Welcome back to the 21st episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be talking about faith in America and where it's going to go in the future, as well as a little bit of international news. If you've been paying attention, you saw the bombings that happened in Ukraine. We're going to be talking about that towards the end. And of course, we will end with our daily delight. A story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now that's enough rambling for me. Let's get into the stories. We'll start with the segment that we've been doing for these last few times, the daily debate. My question for you all today is, is faith still a central piece of the American experiment? And maybe I should clarify, what I mean by that is, do we still need faith or can America function without it? And I think there are lots of different opinions on this one, and I'd love to hear yours down in the comments section below. You don't normally I ask you to put some sort of affiliation or you know give me a little insight as to who you are. If you want to do that, that's fine. But I think this question is is broad enough and it I don't need to know if you're a Christian or not. I don't need to know your age or your political leanings. I just I want to see people's opinions on whether a nation that was founded with principles in not necessarily saying that it was founded under Christianity, saying, oh, this will be the religion of our state, but founded with values that were most definitely present in all major Western religions. I want to see if people still agree that it's a, a crucial part of the system. If you can't tell, that's my opinion. I think it has a huge part to play. Is it as important as it used to be? No. I think we could function without it to some degree, but I think America would be worse off for it. But you didn't ask for my opinion, so let's move on to our stories for today. Our first one comes from Salon. America is divided and broken. So is my church. Is there hope? Absolutely. So over the past six years, America really has only become more divided over time. After the election of Donald Trump, I mean, even towards the end of the Obama era, there was lots of division that was seeping up towards the surface in the American society. And if you live in America or pay attention to the news or social media, it, it's practically impossible to avoid. You, you look at our country and you notice that people are standing miles apart where they used to stand maybe 100 yards apart, if you understand the analogy or the simile that I'm trying to make there. Um, it, it is sad sometimes when you look around, especially as a person who's grown up with the Internet, and you saw, at least when I was younger, I saw this ability to bring people together. I saw the interconnectivity, the people having, oh, okay, we need to check in on Grandma, let me call her. Oh, let me FaceTime her so I can see her. Oh, you know, I want to stay in touch with her. I want to at least see what she's doing. Let's follow her on Facebook and, and see what's going on in her life. And it felt like an era of connectivity. And maybe it was because I was young and naive and I didn't necessarily understand the divisions in our country. I didn't understand politics. But coming from that era and then seeing how social media has really disseminated a whole bunch of different information and has allowed people to create their own silos. 
it, you know, it makes me a little sad. I'm not going to lie. And it, it makes me upset to see how divided we are here in America. And, you know, when you're in person, it's very different. When I'm on campus here at college, uh, you know, half the time politics doesn't come up. And when it does, we can all agree that uh, the government, the government is the problem for the most part. So, you know, there's a little bit of connective tissue there. And in person, you really don't feel that division as much. But on social media, where people don't have to interact with each other directly, you see a lot of division. You see a lot of hatred being spewed from both sides towards the other. So it's concerning. And this author, you know, he's not necessarily talking about division as a whole across the nation. It it is brought up. But he's actually speaking in a more specific sense. He's speaking about his church and how he could feel the division that is bubbling up inside his church. Also, I realized probably in the last few minutes, I probably said division a lot. I'm going to try to stay away from division and divisiveness for the next few minutes. But I'm sorry you had to hear me say that so many times. Let's get to a quote. Quote, suddenly people are not speaking with each other. Vitriol is shared back and forth. And, quote, I'm never talking to, end quote, has been uttered. It's crazy. And I believe my family is only a small reflection of the current state of this country. At the same time, I have also experienced tremendous unity, love, and good feelings of family this year. As I discussed the brokenness of my religious world in the evangelical church, I will share the unity that I have found all around me. And churches really should be a place of unity. Uh, And I, I think it's sad that we go into a church location and there is a sense that we are not one people. We are not all God's people in that church. That, Or even when you look at pastors that say, oh, people of this church, we're all God's people. But you go out into the world and people that do not follow his message, they are not deserving of love. Even though I have not met a pastor in the last few years that has done that, I've heard stories about these kind of pastors. And, you know, that kind of thinking is scary in my mind. So, I always used to picture church as a place of unity. And that's why I think churches are, or at least religion, is a very important part of the American experiment. And that's why I said what I did when I asked the daily debate. Because it is a place where we can come together. It doesn't matter if you're black, white, Asian. It doesn't matter if you're rich, poor. It doesn't matter if you are handicapped or you are abled. It doesn't matter if you are old or young. We all have faith in God, or at least a larger uh, being. We have this shared identity. And that word identity has been you know, a little misused recently. But we all have shared values, or at least have similar ideas about something where we can come together and we can speak about something that has nothing to do with politics. We could all speak about the goodness of God in the church. And that was something beautiful about churches. And the unity there, you could feel it, especially when you would sing happy songs or even sad songs on days um, like uh, Good Friday before Easter. You know, you always felt a sense of unity in these churches. And the fact that that's degrading as well is a very interesting sign. And I wonder if it's degrading because of the state of our nation or 
it started degrading and therefore the state of the nation became what it is. I don't know. I don't know if it's a chicken or an egg. I, I can't tell you. I don't know which one came first. But I think it would be interesting to find out because I think a lot of people would argue the devaluation of religion and the church in human life has created this divisive nature because people have to flock to something else as their identity. They flock to being a Republican or they flock to being a Democrat. And, you know, that's a very simple and non-analytical way of looking at it. But I think it's an interesting question that we need to raise. Another quote here, as I think about how to help my own family heal, I worry outwardly about my fellow evangelicals in this election, as this election approaches. I listened all last week to Reverend Tony Evans speak about what he calls, quote, kingdom politics, end quote. Evans is a big deal in the evangelical circles, and his message is absurdly and blatantly misleading. Evans leaves anything related to blue-collar, working-class values that I believe sustain this country out of his message. And, end quote. And notice the author doesn't mention what these values are specifically. While I agree that, you know, we need to help this segment of the population and that churches should be reaching out and trying to promote family values, he, he doesn't say that. He doesn't specify what he means by that. So, I mean, does he want his pastor to talk about bringing jobs back to the U.S.? Or does he want to talk about welfare pro- programs for low-income families who are, you know, send their fathers going off to the factory every single day? And I think this is where another divide is, is that we say that we want to talk about blue-collar working-class values, and he says that he wants his pastor to talk about them whilst in church. But we have different ideas of what those are nowadays. We don't even have that unity anymore. So then the question becomes, when we can't even agree on what these issues actually mean and how to take an approach to helping these working-class and blue-collar citizens, then if we don't even have a common basis then how are we supposed to have a discussion about it? And I think the author doesn't necessarily know how to do that. And he's not giving a prescription. He's not saying this is exactly how we're going to go about it. But he does highlight that churches have become a place where it's no longer unified, and you can clearly see the politics of at least this one pastor. And that's what he's trying to call out here. And I think it's an interesting argument. So let's get into another quote. Quote, he pretends not to favor a political party. And he's speaking in reference to Reverend Tony Evans, by the way. But when then preaches about voting for candidates who value life and family, and believe it or not, voting for a candidate who believes in more freedom and less regulation. He said that and still tried to claim that he favors neither party. End quote. It's not actually the end of the quote, but I think, you know, there are candidates on both sides that, care about family, that care about life, that care about freedom and less regulation. So I think he's being a little harsh to Tony Evans here because you can have those candidates on both sides. It doesn't necessarily mean you're one or the other, that you support Democrats or you can support Republicans. Then again, nowadays, there are more pro-life, pro-family, pro-freedom and less regulation candidates on the right. So I see where he's coming from. 
But, you know, you could still have those values on both sides. Those are pretty general values. So I think he's coming a little hard at his pastor here. And that may be because he disagrees with him on a political level, but that may not be the case. I could be being harsh to the author. Let's continue with the quote. People write me some pretty nasty emails in response to my articles at Salon, but at least I don't hide who I am. I am also not trying to save my nonprofit status. I'd like to issue a challenge to my church, and especially Pastor Evans and his fellow evangelical leaders. Just back your candidate, end quote. And I, you know, I said earlier that the author has an interesting argument, and this is what I agree with. I think that the pastor should outwardly back their candidate. I, some people may argue, and I know I talked a lot about church being a unifying place, but I think that it's okay for the pastor to say, I want to or I'm going to vote for this one person. Now, should he say that you have to vote for that person too? No, I don't agree. If he wants to dispouse his arguments and say, okay, this candidate really believes in uh, our pro-life position that we hold in some churches. Oh, this person really, really is uh, is going to provide less regulation in certain areas, and he's going to open up nonprofit status so we can actually get taxed less and use some of our money to better help the community. If the pastor wants to make those arguments, he can. I think he'll lose some of his members in his church, and I think that's probably why they don't do it as it is now. But I think he should be willing and able to come out and say what he believes. And if somebody disagrees, in the church especially, they should not leave the church. They should say, okay, I, I understand where he's coming from. I have a different belief, and I think God compels me to... Uh, vote in a different way, or even I think that it would be easier or it would be better to implement God's will through this policy. And you could still have that different viewpoint, those different approaches to issues in the same church, because at the end of the day, you're all God's children. That's your, that's still your connecting fabric. So you shouldn't be as harsh or mean or degrade somebody else's beliefs just because they don't line up with yours. And I feel like in a church, even though it's not always the case, and unfortunately churches are full of people and people are not perfect. They are sinners. We are prone to hatred, envy, jealousy. So I can understand why I'm thinking a little idealistically here, but in premise alone, a church should be a place where you all love each other despite other characteristics that may divide you. And a pastor should be able to say what he wants, and so should any member of that church without being ridiculed. And I think, like I said, it's an idealistic point of view. I know that I'm young and naive, but at the end of the day, I think that's how it should be. Because if anything, they'll actually encourage people to have a more in-depth conversation rather than using anecdotes and personal examples and emotion. They can say, okay, well, what would God say in this instance? And it can actually spur an intellectual conversation about the principles in the Bible and what God has to say about certain issues or what Jesus had to say about certain issues. And it's another avenue to have a conversation that doesn't necessarily necessarily lead to people getting as emotionally attached to that argument. And it can lead to some good outcomes and some good policy decisions if people are actually willing to sit down and have those conversations, in my opinion. So I think that 
especially nowadays, there's a perception that religion is for more for the conservatives than for the Democrats. And a lot of conservatives base their arguments in uh, biblical tradition or religious tradition. But I'm gonna, I have two quotes here from two different parts of the Bible that I think both exemplify one part, one party in the other, or at least the ideas that they hold. And my point of doing this is proving that the Bible has values that are despised that every person can enjoy, but that could be applied to one group's policy and another group's policy. It's not just conservatives that are religious and have a basis for their beliefs in the Bible. The first one comes from Exodus twenty-two twenty-five. If you le- lend money to my people, to the poor among you, you are not to act as a creditor to him. You shall not charge him interest, end quote. And some people may be like, whoa, whoa, what does that have to do with anything? That is, in my opinion, what, what welfare is to some degree. The government is giving you money out of the goodness of their heart, or in some cases to get you to vote for them, but I'll put my cynical side apart, uh, aside for a second. It's a way to help those in need. You shall not act as a creditor. You shall not, call, uh, you shall not charge them interest. We are giving you this money. We are giving you these food stamps so that you can provide for your family and so that you can get out of the position that you're in. That's, a, in, my, that's in my opinion, that could really apply to the Democratic point of view on welfare. And the next one I have here is from Jeremiah 1.5. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed, I appointed you as a prophet to the nations, end quote. And obviously, that is a pro-life argument. Before you were formed in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. That means that you have your own distinct identity. You are human. You are your own thing before you are even born. That is an obviously pro-life argument. So like I said, the Bible... In you know, some people don't take the Bible as uh, this is the the absolute. Some people just believe in a creator, but a large majority of the Christian ideologies here in the United States they take the Bible as the word of the Lord. So I think it's important to point out that it has ideas that could be used by either side to justify or at least rationalize their policy positions. So just keep that in mind. It's not, it may seem like it's one side or the other that really is a, is Bible thumping real hard, but there are plenty of people that I know that are Democrats who are very religious, and whenever we have conversations, they pull out quotes about being generous towards one's neighbor and being willing to give up part of yourself in order to help the community as a whole. So, I think it's really important that we take a step back and notice that this does not have to be as much of a dividing issue as people would like to think, especially this author. We can come together in places of worship and be united under one banner, and it can provide for a sense of unity in a time that is very, very divisive. Yes, I know I said I would stop saying it, but I just got you one more before we move on to the next article. And while that one, this last article was a bit cynical and, you know, had a little bit of undertones of not being happy with the church, I think my commentary brought it back around, made it a little bit more positive. But now we have one that is is outright, um, how do I put it here? 
let's just say it is not a God-loving person writing this. Um, PBS NewsHour. Michael Flynn is recruiting a, quote, army of God in growing Christian nationalist movement. So I have a few quotes here from one of the events that one of these authors went to. Quote, we're under warfare. I would take a bullet for my nation. They hate you because they hate Jesus. Put on the whole armor of God. These are just a few quotes that came from speakers at a Reawaken America event this week. And these are obviously taken out of context, but the language is still strong nonetheless. So Reawaken America was founded by Michael Flynn, the former advisor to Donald Trump, and a Oklahoma businessman, Clay Clark. And it was organized to spread God's influence and you know, return faith to the center of American life. And it kind of ties into that last article we were reading where it's, they believe that the church should be the center of American life. And whether or not they outright say it, they think that faith should be a unifying factor. Now, some of the language from some of the speakers would say otherwise, and it definitely has become very political when I was reading through some of the other articles about it. But we'll, we'll stick to this one because it has a pretty good perspective and a few good quotes that I really like. In the quote, in the version of America laid out at the Reawaken Tour, Christianity should be the center of American life and institutions. Instead, it's under attack and attendees need to fight to restore the nation's Christian roots. It's a message repeated over and over at Reawaken one that upends the constitutional ideal of a pluralist democracy. But it's a message that is taking hold. A poll by the University of Maryland conducted in May found that 61% of Republicans supported declaring the U.S. to be a Christian nation. And I love the comparison that the author makes here, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick at it a little bit, which is they're saying, first, we're talking about a growing uh, nationalist Christian movement inside the United States. Fine. But then they throw in a poll from University of Maryland says 61% of Republicans support declaring the U.S. a Christian nation. And though it's not direct, and I don't necessarily know if it is intended, it creates a false comparison saying, oh, if you're a Republican who thinks that Christianity should be at the center of the American experience, the American experiment, excuse me, then, oh, you are instantly a Christian nationalist. And even that term is extremely loaded. But I think it's a really false comparison. And I don't know if it's intended or not, but it, it's a clever little tactic. And if it was intended, uh, you know, you could tell where the author's coming from with their bias. And you just have to keep your eye on things like that when you're reading articles like this. The clever little tactics where they make false comparisons or they bring up two pieces of data that aren't necessarily correlated, that don't actually mean much independently, but when they're next to each other, they look like they're significant. Quote, Reawaken acts as a petri dish for Christian nationalism and pushes the idea that there's a battle underway between good and evil forces. Those who are considered good include, sorry, evil include government officials and Democrats. It's a, quote, pep rally on spiritual steroids, says Christian Cobes Demu, 
a history professor at Calvin University in Michigan who studies evangelicalism, end quote. And I, though I don't agree that they should be pointing fingers at Democrats specifically and the government, because there are people that could be said are quote-unquote evil, and I'm using their language here, there are people that don't have the public interest at heart, that only have the corporate interest or even their own greed in the U.S. government that are Republicans as well. So I don't think that it's smart of Reawaken America or some of its speakers to point the finger directly at Democrats and the government. But the author acts as though this is not an eternal battle in Christianity. And I I brought this up with uh, a friend of mine when I I texted them after I read this. And I was like, does this not... We were having a discussion about, you know, the eternal battle of good versus evil. And I said, is this not what Christianity has espoused for thousands of years, that there's an eternal battle, an ongoing battle between God and the devil, within yourself, within society, within the world at large? And the author kind of frames this as, oh, this is extreme rhetoric. No, this rhetoric has been used for years upon years upon years. This is how some Christian communities talk about Uh, the world that they see as unholy, as it's the devil's influence, it's evil. So I I think it's interesting, or I think it's maybe a little bit disingenuous that the author pulls that out and is saying, oh, look at that, they're calling certain people evil. Christian communities have been doing that for a long time. And it's not necessarily because they're judgmental. It just is because they have a perspective. They have a lens through which they see the world, which is God is good, the devil is bad. And God and the devil are always at odds. So I think it's an interesting way that the author tried to frame it, and I don't agree with it whatsoever. Now, there is one interesting part about these rallies that I I was kind of unhappy to hear about. Quote, ticket prices ran as high as $500 for VIP seats or $250 for general admission. Though tickets were only sold by phone and sales agents were eager to bargain, an AP reporter bought two tickets to a show for less than $100. A retiree said he paid more than $700 on admission for two, one VIP ticket for himself, plus a donation of $250 for a general admission ticket for someone who couldn't afford it. So... It's sad to see that Reawaken America is exploiting these people who see a quote-unquote rot in the American system and want to ensure that God is at the center of the conversation, is back at the center of American life. I'm, I'm not saying that they're purposely doing this to exploit money from them. Maybe they really do believe what they are espousing. And obviously, if you're in what, 13 different towns, 13 different cities, doing a tour all across the U.S., you think your message is important. But do they really have to charge so much? Do they really have to make it that expensive? I understand they have bills to pay, but they're also running ads behind the speakers when they're talking. So the question is, is Flynn's battle a righteous one or just another attempt to extract money from those that are dissatisfied with the state of the nation? And I think it's a a question that really does need to be asked because people rile up communities in order to get them to be active and go out and vote and also to give money to certain organizations and people. And unfortunately, that's the way that our society works. And, you know, 
in an idealistic world, that wouldn't be the case, but that's not rational. These companies do need to, sorry, it's not logical. These companies do need to pay for certain expenses. So, you know, maybe I'm just being a little bit cynical once again about the state of our nation and the way that things operate. But I hope in the future that they can lower these costs as they get more people to come so they can make it a little bit more accessible and that, you know, working class families or anybody that goes to these doesn't have to pay out an arm and a leg just to hear a message that, in their opinion, is very important. All right, so we're going to switch from local or national news to a really quick article from BBC News. Shock and horror after Russia's wave of strikes across Ukraine. So, as you probably saw over the weekend, there was a bombing at a bridge that connects Crimea to the mainland of Ukraine. Russia immediately blamed Ukraine for this, and there were a few um, stories about how the Ukrainians were taking selfies outside a, a painting or a poster talking about the explosion of the bridge. And it's not totally clear that it was Ukraine, but Russia blamed them. And, you know, they retaliated, of course. So there were lots of missile strikes around Kiev, the capital of Ukraine. And a lot of these uh, targets or where these missiles landed seem to be focused on centers of culture or places that were very uh, symbolic of the Ukrainian nation. And it's not confirmed that that's what Russia was aiming for. But it has that appearance for sure. Quote, it's difficult to tell what is being targeted, but a statement from Ukraine's Ministry of Culture said museums and the Philharmonic building had been hit, end quote. So, and I think it would make sense if Putin was aiming at these locations because the bridge into Crimea is kind of a symbolic um Thing for the nation saying, oh, yes, we, we have control over this area in Crimea. We have control over the access to this area. So it's kind of a symbol of Russian power in the region. So, of course, they're going to attack cultural centers and large symbolic buildings in Kiev saying, okay, you come for something that is important to us symbolically, we're going to come for you that's something symbolically. We have a few more quotes here. One saying, quote, I think they wanted to hit the university building in the monument of Hervesky. Those are important symbols for us. This was a symbolic attack. But there were also attacks, end quote, but there were also attacks that are, you know, of a more strategic nature. Quote, reports from elsewhere speak of a thermal power plant being hit in leave. President Vladimir Zelensky says energy facilities are being hit all over the country, end quote. And it seems that Russia's really, really, you know, turning up the heat here. The question is, did the Ukrainians push their luck a little too far, in my mind, when bombing the bridge in Crimea and then also gloating about it on social media? I, th I think that they really poked the bear here and Putin is not happy and he's you know, mobilizing 300,000 more troops. He's showing that, okay, you, you think you're winning on this one? We can attack your strategic infrastructure. We haven't done it so far. We can. And we can also attack at the heart of your nation. And we can make people afraid. We can attack your history and demoralize your people. So 
you know, this this is a, a bad sign that Russia is is willing to push a little bit harder now. And I think Ukrainians need to be hesitant. And the BBC agrees, quote, two days ago, social media was flooded with videos and memes as Ukrainians wildly celebrated the attack on the bridge linking Russia with the Crimean Peninsula. Today, the videos are all of shell-shocked residents, fiery debris, and urgent warnings. Any sense of euphoria is gone. It feels inevitable, but that doesn't lessen the shock. Fear is once again stalking the capital, end quote. So how steely is the Ukrainians' people resolve? I mean, that's what's going to be tested here. It's been tested before, and we've seen them come out and be very strong. But Russia is clearly sending a message that this is not going to be easy. If you really want to keep going, we are going to make this hard for you. And you may not come out of it the same nation. So it's just one of those things that we got to keep in mind, keep your eye on. It's, you know, it doesn't necessarily affect us as much here. I mean, with the NATO uh, involvement, it, it may pull us in eventually. So just keep your eye out and make sure that you're diligent when reading about these issues and getting both sides. And if you can, get access to some Russian media as well. I don't think that, you know, you should necessarily believe everything they say, but it's important to get both sides of the argument. And also it will give you an insight into Putin's thinking, considering the media is practically controlled by his regime in Russia. But that's enough negative stuff for today. Let's get to our daily delight. Bear visits woman's home and closes the door behind himself. So a video was posted recently by Su- Susan Keough out of Lake Highland, uh, Highland Lakes, New Jersey. Keough is a lover of the local bears and it appears that they like her too. Apparently they like her so much that they didn't let the front door stop them. Quote, a recent viral video, in a recent viral video, Keo managed to film a wild black bear standing in her entryway. The sweet bear used his mouth to close the door behind him, but he wasn't done there. The bear opened the door again and closed it. Keo can be heard saying, quote, Are you playing games with me? Close the door, sweetie. And I, I think it's amazing to see how calm she remains in this video. If a black bear was doing that at my door, I would not be so calm. I would probably be freaking out or at least standing extremely extremely still and not reaching for my phone to film it Uh, but just a reminder you know be cautious around bears no matter how playful they are no matter how much you think that they're being calm just always be careful Uh, and if you want to see the adorable video of the interaction between miss keo and this black bear along with any of the other stories from today They will be linked in the description below that like and subscribe button. And with that said, only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.